It's playoff time. Big stakes, bigger promotions. Every day of basketball's playoffs, DraftKings will have $20,000 in total prizes up for grabs. The best part, it's free to get your shot at these daily cash prizes. DraftKings will be offering two free-to-play pools every day of the NBA playoffs, offering players a free shot at $20,000 in total prizes. DraftKings free-to-play pools are easy to enter. Just download the DraftKings app, go to pools, and choose from a wide variety of free contests for an opportunity to win cash prizes. All you have to do is answer a handful of questions around what you think is going to happen during that day's basketball games and track your results throughout the evening. Questions will range from which team will hit the most threes to which team will score first. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your money at your convenience. So download the top-rated DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN when you sign up to get your free shot at $20,000 in total prizes every day of the basketball playoffs. Head to DraftKings Pools page to get your shot at huge cash prizes. That's promo code TBPN for a limited time only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for full details. Hi, this is Seth Rosenthal from Secret Base, and I am on the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shoot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey, this is Aaron. Thanks for tuning in to this action-packed episode. With Law Murray of The Athletic doing much of the heavy lifting, we'll focus on the 4-5 matchup out west between the Mavericks and Clippers. It's a rematch from last postseason's opening round which LA took in six games before infamously blowing a 3-1 lead to the Nuggets in the conference semifinals. This time around, 22-year-old superstar guard Luka Doncic is out for revenge. So far, he's getting it. Meanwhile, the Clips are scrambling for answers, especially from the defensive end, as the Mavs take a 2-0 series lead to Dallas after stealing the first two contests in Los Angeles. Doncic is playing upward of 40 minutes per game, averaging 35 points, and hitting three-pointers left and right. He even has a triple-double under his belt. As a team, Dallas has converted a staggering 50% of its three-point tries, with Tim Hardaway Jr. making 11 of 19 from deep over the two wins, while averaging 24.5 points. On the other side, Marcus Morris has missed 9 of 11 long-range attempts, and most recently fouled out of Game 2. Our guest, Law Murray, took over for Jovan Buha earlier this season on the Athletics' Clippers beat when Jovan began covering Staples Center's other NBA team. Although it's his first year in this particular role, Law has covered the Clippers extensively over the years and certainly knows the game inside and out. A quick fun fact before the conversation begins. In college, as part of his weekly Mad Skills newsletter, Law recorded an entire album in which he rapped on most of the tracks and heavily featured sounds from popular 90s video games. What started out as a joke morphed into something a little more serious. 
Law even performed some of the songs, but that was over a decade ago. Here, in the present day, Law is covering the Los Angeles Clippers at a critical time in their history. If they experience a second straight playoff meltdown, and it's not looking good right now, franchise cornerstone and multi-time champion Kawhi Leonard could opt out of his contract and sign elsewhere. Without further ado, I'll let Mr. Murray take us to law school on all things Clippers. Law, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you on and off the intramural basketball court at USC in the newsroom too, Um, but I'm glad we finally have this chance to bring you on the show. What a time for your first appearance, right? Yep. That's, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend exactly what happened Tuesday night, but <laughs> we'll do our best. I mean, the the reality is there's comes a point in the playoff series where it's damn it time. And uh, if it wasn't that point Saturday, then it certainly was Tuesday night. You led in perfectly to my next question by referring to it as damn it time. So after the game two loss, Paul George was quoted as saying, there is no level of concern. Now that the Clippers trail the series 2-0 with it shifting back to Dallas, this feels like an obvious question, but how much concern or panic should there be if you're the Clippers? Look, panic is not something that you should have when you're a professional or in a competition and the competition is not over. If you're going to admit that, then that is a problem. And if it's real, without you even having to admit it, that is a problem as well. And I will give the Clippers the benefit of the doubt, which is seemingly never a thing you should do. <laughs> uh, but I will give them the benefit of the doubt. They express that they are confident still, that they're still together. But I will say that I observed a difference in that tone at the end of game two. And some of that is the seriousness of what they're facing. I don't think a 1-0 deficit is serious. I am the first person before and after game ones to say don't overreact to game ones, yeah, right? it's a long series. Right. Game one does not, you know, does not define a series. You can't say, ah, oh, this is exactly what I, it's like, no, nah, game one is game one. It's one game. Flipped words around, it's literally one game. You can't do that when issues that came up or were compounded in the next game are repeated. You, you are defining a series at that point. So things are different for sure coming out of game two than they were coming out of game one. Hey, look, the Mavericks did their part. The Clippers now have to find a way to beat this Mavericks team either four straight times or four times in five games. Mm-hmm. And this is the NBA. This isn't the NHL. This isn't MLB. I bring that up because you can't lose Friday and then win the series. Mathematically, in the NBA, it's impossible. You can lose Friday and force a game seven, but you will have terminal cancer in this series if you lose Friday night. Game two should have been the must win, if you want to call it that. It wasn't. Um, well, they didn't. They didn't win it. Game three is an elimination game. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense that Paul George would say after game two that, that there's no level of concern or panic. He has to say that. And I take your point. You would hope um, from a Clippers fan perspective that there is no panic. They're professionals. 
They're very talented, obviously. They have a lot of adjustments to make, which we'll get into, and they need to start making them or they're going to be out. But being realistic, it will be extremely difficult for them to come back to win this series because, as you noted, the simple math of it is you have to win four of the last five. Three of those would be in Dallas, and uh, it, they're just running out of time. It's damn it time right now. Yeah, Uh if you're the Clippers, all you have is your team. And I think that point kind of matters. We've been discussing all year the impact of not having fans and not having that support that comes with being at home. Like we're talking this time, not exactly this time last year, but in the playoffs last season, they were in the bubble. And we saw how that affected certain guys. Uh, they had to leave the bubble or they were dealing with issues because they were seeing the same dudes even when they weren't in competition. That was supposed to not be a factor this time around. And for some guys, it, they've played well. This isn't even something where you want you, you put this on, on the star players. I mean, last night was an example of Kawhi and PG responding. Like, you get 69 points from those guys and... They did their part, to be honest with you, uh, from an offensive standpoint. They did not get the support from their team. They did not get support from their coaching staff. And at some point, you wonder. It, it, that part makes you wonder, like, how much more do you do you need? And yeah. I think Kawhi kind of said it simply. Uh, you know, Terrence Mann's energy and, and effort – uh, a member of the media was trying to praise that and set Kawhi up for suggesting that, yeah, the, you know, is that what you need? And Kawhi was like, "Listen, man played well. He scored. He hit the he hit he hit the glass. Whatever. That's not what they need. They need stops. They need defense. They can't keep allowing Dallas to overperform. That might be quote unquote small sample size, but if you really think about it, every playoff series is a small sample size, and every playoff series." Every playoff game, you're close to the end of someone's season. Mm-hmm. And th- that's the gravity of the situation. You would think that they would have had all the time to prepare for game one. They didn't c- come through. You would think that they had everything in front of them and could lock in and figure it out. They yeah. didn't come through. We were talking from the player's perspective, but um, from a fan's perspective, Clippers Nation's in full-on panic mode right now. And I imagine the mocking from most of the rest of the league's fan bases is at pretty high levels also. Of course, it's no secret that the Clippers franchise has never appeared in a Western Conference final. And uh, especially after last postseason's 3-1 collapse to the Nuggets in the Orlando bubble in the conference semifinals, there's got to be a sense of here we go again to a certain extent that could be more of a fan or media construct. But to what extent do those franchises' inner demons play any role on the players' output, especially the start of game one? Or was that more of just the struggling in matinee games or something like that? I don't really subscribe to all the media narratives having that much of an impact on what happens in a a game. Especially especially when you're talking about franchise histories, because franchise histories, yeah, those are the things that media holds on to because media is, they're they're the gatekeepers of the conversation of the game. It's something that fans hold on to because some of them live through it. 
the fans are the ones, not even the organizations, because organizations change. The Clippers, like the owner just got here in 2014. The head coach, he's been an assistant, you know, uh, on the team two years before this year. But Teron Lou, it's not like Teron Lou was coaching the team in 2006, you know, uh, when Dan Ewing couldn't cover Rajah Bell or whoever it was, yeah. you know, in, in the semifinals back mm-hmm. in 06. None of these players were Clippers five years ago. None of them. That stuff is like they hear it, but the only thing the players are focused on is the things that they should be focused on, which is winning a championship. I mean, anything less is uh, like they want to be a part of the team that gets over the hump. That's the only impact that it has. If you're playing for a quote-unquote legacy franchise, right, then you're trying to add to that. And you're trying to be a part of a discussion that has already been laid out, but you still have to do it. I mean, when you're playing for a team that is trying to do something for the first time, then in this case, it's a matter of, well, it hasn't been done before, but imagine if you're a part of the team that finally does it. So all that other stuff, like you're going to hear noise, but I think every professional hears some kind of noise, whether it's coming from a fan base that thinks they won everything or a fan base that hasn't won anything. Like, I think that the pressures there, it's what you make of it. Some people, they thrive in pressure. I think Teron Lou, Paul George, they talked about mental approach to this series specifically. And they both were like, look, you're playing a game that you, that you love. Like you should enjoy this. Uh, Kawhi Leonard at the end of game one, he said, nothing good comes easy. You know, Kawhi Leonard was on the bench with Pop when he was like, you know, I, I need some nasty, you know, in a tense moment in the playoffs. You know, things are that are hard, you need to come through. Mm-hmm. The Clippers, their question for them was, how will you deal with adversity? And you know what? This is adversity right here. Yeah. This is adversity. So, it's it's just like it's so simple, but it's hard at the same time because they're making it hard on themselves. So it's like this. We're going to make it as simple as can be. The Clippers chose a lot of this. They chose their opponent. They chose a lot of the narratives that went into how they got here. They chose health over whatever could have been gained from playing the last two regular season games. They chose their path. Now they're in a situation where things are as hard as they can be. Either the Clippers are going to overcome it and it's going to be like, whew, well, you got through that. Yeah. Uh, or they're not going to be around after next weekend. That's it. <laughs> you put it That's really well. It. I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> Before the series, you not only picked Dallas to steal game one, but you also lean toward the Mavericks winning the series, which was not a popular pick at all among the media, local or national. What are you seeing through two games that you already were anticipating would happen or would be problematic for the Clippers before the series even started? When the series is lined up, I was like, okay, look, you could have had Portland or you could have had Dallas. That was a choice the Clippers probably knew they had in the fourth quarter in Oklahoma City. And they picked Dallas because, again, you're thinking, well, we want to create a, a specific path to the 
to the conference finals. Um, uh, you know, whether it's the Lakers or not, it's like they were very aggressive at uh putting that path together for themselves. That meant that they picked Dallas, a team that they struggled with during this regular season, over Portland, a team that they more or less had their number. Uh they dominated the Trailblazers during the season. So it was clear there. I mean, I don't I really can't imagine that in anyone's right mind that they picked Dallas because they wanted Dallas. It wasn't Dallas, man. They wanted I mean, they were going to have a home court advantage regardless, but I I, I truly believe that after the Oklahoma City game, it was a matter of now nah, we really want the four seed and we want a path to make sure that we don't see the Lakers until the conference finals, which, okay, fine, but you have to get there. You have to get there. And I thought the Mavericks played some interesting regular season games against the Clippers. That December game after Christmas, where the Mavericks wound up leading by 50 points at halftime, what what happened there? Well, the Mavericks took advantage of all of the Clippers' mistakes offensively, and the Clippers had an awful shooting game. So the Mavericks offense was pretty damn good, but it was helped by the fact that the Clippers spent that first half turning the ball over and missing all but one of their three pointers. I mean, that bellied a lot of what defined the Clippers offense this season. Now they had the mini series in Dallas and they won the first of those games, which was intense. Those were playoff minutes in that first meeting of the two because they were coming off of a bad loss in New Orleans where they lost Serge Ibaka to an injury that would ultimately sideline Serge for two months. So the approach in that second night of a back-to-back was, we have to win this game. That's a good approach to have and keep and keep in mind. Like That's the one thing the Clippers should feel good about going into Friday is they've had their backs up against the wall, feeling like they had to get a game, and they did respond. They need... Friday night, what they got out of their team March 15th. But even in that game, I mean, it's not like they scored a lot. They won that game because they defended. They won that game because they didn't let guys not named Luka Doncic go off. And then they came back two nights later in Dallas against the same team. And Luka went for 42. And the Clippers shot poorly from three. And the rotations were still short. It was still on national TV. It was still a playoff kind of atmosphere because that's what the mini series this season they kind of fostered that kind of a feeling that all right you're going to see the same team let's 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 get some adjustments let's make sure these games play out differently than the previous one mm-hmm. that was interesting to me and i just felt like this was not the matchup the clippers should have been signing up for and if they were prepared for it if they thought that what their team looked like in may was going to be different in march we're going to see but I felt like Dallas was going to defend the three-pointer relatively well. I thought that they were going to at least contain Kawhi and PG. And I thought Luka, one of the best pick-and-roll ball handlers in the NBA, and certainly one of the most voluminous ones, was going to get his numbers. I thought those were all going to be factors in terms of making this series difficult, that making this series come down to one game, maybe. yeah, and. Uh, the Clippers at this point, I think they would be fortunate to force a game seven at this rate. I thought it would be Mavericks in seven. Uh, if it's a game seven, the Ma- then the Clippers must have done something right between games two and six or Definitely. between games three and six. Yeah, yeah. 
I think you said uh, you did an excellent job of setting the scene right now, but we definitely have to spend a lot more time on Luka Doncic. Defending him has been a complete nightmare. They set so many screens. The Clippers are essentially switching every single time. Uh, sometimes, of course, you have to just shake your head at the, some of the shots that he makes, like that fallaway rainbow jumper against Kawhi, or he had that uh, one-footed running three-point shot. Yeah, that was disrespectful. Wow, drifting to his left. I mean, he's a top MVP candidate for a reason. That said, the defensive game plan against him is clearly not working. Certain slower big men, <coughs> Zubots, get switched onto Doncic, and he can just score pretty easily, it seems like. But then also, he's overpowering smaller guards like Beverly and Reggie Jackson. Specifically, what needs to be changed besides everything? Uh, I mean, yeah, besides everything, um, I actually thought the Clippers got some wins against Luka in game two in terms of they forced turnovers. They limited some of the assists. Those were the two things that it's like, well, that helps. That certainly helps. And it's not like Luka went off in the fourth quarter for the second straight game. You look up and it's like, what What are Luka Doncic's numbers in the fourth quarter? He's missed 10 out of 12 shots. In the fourth quarter, he's missed all five of his threes. He has as many turnovers as assists. His plus minus in the fourth quarter is even. So in a weird way, Doncic is killing these dudes before the fourth quarter. But the problem is that the help that Luka is getting is that that's hurting him. Uh, When Luka's on the bench, Jalen Brunson has drawn three and ones. (laughs) He's, I mean... And and Jalen's not even having that great of a series, but those and ones are just like they they kind of shake you up. Yeah. And then it goes back to Tim Hardaway Jr. Ooh, Tim yeah. Hardaway Jr. is he's killing them in the fourth quarter with when he makes the threes. He's made two of them, but it's like jog your memory. If you watch those games, you know when he hit those and you know what the impact of him hitting them were. You know? And yeah. so that's really what it comes down to. When it comes to Luca. That is a first three quarters problem. But when it comes to the game flow, because of what Luka has done in those first three quarters, it has put the Clippers in, in lineups where they basically they have to play perfect basketball. They have to go on a run. They have to significantly outplay the Mavericks in the fourth quarter because they're in holes. It's not a point that I can like bang to the wall because of the results of the game and Luka's box score at the end, but it's like, if you look at Luca's fourth quarter numbers, you actually are like, you'll take that. You will take saying, oh, Luke only had five points on 12 shots in 24th quarter minutes throughout this series. You must be doing something right. Nah, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're overplaying Luca to the point where you're giving up open threes and dunks to Chris Dets and the doors being closed on you in your own building. So in a, in a weird way, you got to find a way to get Luca uncomfortable early and his teammates uncomfortable early. This is a team effort. The team defense of the Clippers has failed and the team offense of the Mavericks says you you, you got to tip your cat and you got to find a way to start both halves better. There are a couple things you said that I wanted to follow up on. One of them is when you expend so much energy playing catch up all game, it's hard to sustain it. 
in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, especially considering who's playing those minutes. You know, uh, you can't lose the minutes where your best players are on the floor together. And that is an unfortunate thing that has happened with the Clippers. I mean, I don't even have the numbers in front of me, but you can probably deduce that Kawhi and PG, guys who have been great all year, for those guys to be outscored in their minutes by 30 points through two home games in the playoffs wasn't part of the plan, Aaron. No. (laughs) The other thing, too, I wanted to mention, the fourth quarter of game one, even though Luka wasn't scoring, the Clippers were doubling him near half court. And I know he has really deep range, but a lot of times he was just leisurely dropping a bounce pass to someone and then a guy would drain a three because they have those lineups where he's surrounded by three-point shooters or they do a second pass. And like you mentioned, then it's like a drop down to Porzingis and the Clippers have their small lineup in there and he just can easily get a dunk or like a like a short shot over that. So isn't that also a major concern? Even if Doncic isn't scoring, if he's doubled so far out and they're not able to rotate quickly enough? Yeah, that's well, that's what I mean by the reaction to the first three quarters. You know, they're trying to fire on Luca, but what is happening is Luca's seeing it coming and he's got the hockey assist if he's not getting the assist himself. Right. And it's stuff like that where it's just like, that's not, that's not good. You know, uh, you have to find a way to play him so that you're not giving those up. But the Clippers are doing that because they're down. And they need to do something to create events. They need to create more possessions to give themselves more chances. That's a it's good a point. First, so you're yeah, saying they like, wouldn't be playing him It's a first three that, quarters problem. Yeah, so they, they wouldn't necessarily be playing him that close to half court if they weren't as desperate? Let me, let me put it another way. I don't think the Clippers have had a lead of five points or more at any point in this series. I'm pretty sure you're right. Home. Yeah. And the Mavericks, as a team... They have not lost a game all season when they have led at the end of the first quarter. All season. That includes the playoffs now. That includes the games against the Clippers. When the Mavericks have led at the end of one, which means they have been able to control the game in some aspect, they have won. That's why I keep bringing it back to it's the starters for the Clippers. They have to start the game mm-hmm. with a margin. Even the game that the Clippers won in Dallas on March 15th, the Clippers got off to a great start, and the Mavericks actually took that start and made a run in the second quarter, took a lead, but the Clippers maintained control of the game. They maintained control in the third quarter. When Chris Asperzingis was going off on March 15th, they still had a lead. They still were able to extend a lead. The Clippers need to play with a lead, and then they won't have to do the crazy stuff that comes with, you know, these unorthodox lineups and unorthodox defenses. They're doing it because they have to create events to get to regain some level of control at a time where you're running out of time. There's something that Mavericks are doing really well. They, they know that they can succeed in. It's playing with a lead, especially a significant one yeah. in the second half. 
and that's where the Clippers are in trouble. They're playing a catch-up game against a team that you don't want to be playing catch-up against. I want to talk more about rotations, though. What are your thoughts on that really small ball lineup that Ty Lue has been increasingly going to? It's it's just a means of they're trying to switch everything on the perimeter. It's trying to guard Luka. They're not getting enough out of Zoo. Honestly, that's been the biggest concern. Uh, Rick Harlow should get a lot of credit for taking Vitsa Zubats out of this series. Zubats was very confident coming into the series about how he was playing in general and about this matchup against Dallas. Like, Zoo gets the ball in the paint and he just has destroyed Dallas, but he's not getting the ball. He's not getting repeated offensive rebounds. He's not getting opportunities to roll, catch, finish, and get double-figure scoring. And Zoo's been a liability defensively, not because Zoo's a bad player, but it's Zoo's just an ideal fit when the Mavericks have it going. And at that point, it's like, well, you got to try something else. He's not even rebounding. Yeah, like he's not rebounding because he's not in position to rebound. Look at who's playing for Dallas. Like the Willie Cauley-Stein minutes are coming when Zoo is off the floor. Mm-hmm. And when Willie Cauley signed, I mean, I saw Dwight Powell for a little bit in the fourth quarter, but like for the most part, Dallas has played Kleba and Porzingis, and they're they're not really having a big on the floor who doesn't uh, take up space inside. So it, we're really Zoo's not the strongest defensive rebounder to begin with. Asking Zoo to rebound from the perimeter. I mean, they've had they've had their issues. Maxi Kleber's done an outstanding job crashing from the corners. We saw both in the second half of game one and in the second half of game two, where Maxi would crash from the corner, get a long rebound, and create a three pointer uh, for mm-hmm. for a teammate or draw a foul. Uh, and that is is it's just a bad right now. It's just a bad matchup. Zoo hasn't been able to take advantage of 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 those circumstances. So I mean, we saw Terrence Mann get broken out. I mean. That was an adjustment, but by the time Terrence came in the game, it was too damn late. Uh, so, I, I honestly, we're going to see more lineup changes, and we're, we might have to see a starting lineup change because the Clippers are starting games at a disadvantage, and uh, I'm just really interested to see exactly who it's going to wind up being because uh, Serge hasn't played much. Serge probably should play more, but too many guys are not on the same page either way you look at it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Ibaka. So I have a two-part question about these lineups, specifically the big man spot. So first thing I wanted you to address is if playing that small ball lineup is likely to be problematic if Porzingis is in the game. Because I've seen when Lou has deployed that lineup, Porzingis has gotten some easy shots. And then the, the second part of the question is, just about Serge Ibaka. We know he's returning from a lower back injury that sidelined him for a couple months. He only logged six minutes in game two, but he could be seen working out on the court after the loss. A lot of people, including myself, were clamoring for him to get more of an opportunity in that second half. I don't know how he was health-wise or if Ty Lu just didn't feel comfortable going to him at that point. He's a long and versatile defender, even though he looked bad against Luka in some spots. So what is your take on Ibaka? And also if you can really defend Porzingis with that really small lineup? 
The way you defend Porzingis with the small lineup is you have to get underneath him. I mean, uh, I think Tim Cato did a great job this week kind of describing Chris S. Porzingis' body type. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of high cut. And if you play basketball against guys like that, when you're the smaller man, you're the lower man, uh, you can get leverage on him. So it's one reason why at 7-3, Porzingis' post game is so bad. You know, uh, he can get pushed out and he can be uncomfortable. And you need to take that when you're boxing out. Like, you don't jump with a guy like that. You get low on him. So the smaller lineups can be effective. They've been using Kawhi Leonard uh, to guard Chris Stapps to to limit him, to keep him out of actions where you're having Porzingis, Doncic, pick and roll actions uh, because... Basically, you're just switching Kawhi on the Luka, and that's not what Luka wants, uh, especially in a mid or late clock situation. That being said, when you go to someone like Serge Ibaka, I, I honestly, I think Serge is, is fine physically, but it's just communication is not there. They're not on the same page when, um, when he's been on the floor. And that's not even to say that the Clippers have been at their worst or anything with Serge. Like, that's not the case at all. Serge needs to play more. Like, I mean, if you want to not have a center on the floor, that's one thing. But they're playing lineups where Serge has to be able to make an impact. You have to keep things honest. And I think that you're going to see him play more in Game 3 Friday. Everything's been bizarre. A lot of things I'm not going to front. Like the lineups, the situation that the Clippers are in, situation that the Clippers put themselves into, a lot of it's just kind of bizarre. It's It's the kind of thing that... You hate the narratives, the BS narratives, but they get another chapter every year. And yeah, the usage of Surge, especially with how hard he's worked to get to the point of being able to contribute, it, you, you didn't sign Surge for this. So uh, we're gonna we're, we're gonna see Friday how things change with him. Mm-hmm. And just talking more about who's in the game and how many minutes they garner. What is your take on the point guard situation? Playoff Rondo, obviously he has some limitations, but I think you have to feel pretty comfortable when he's on the court, just given his playoff experience and his savvy. Reggie Jackson, kind of undersized and has some defensive vulnerabilities. He got 30 minutes on Tuesday night, which I thought was too many. But I mean, Beverly has also been getting bullied in the post against Luka. So there are no easy answers. No. And that's the thing. The Clippers have a surplus of options. It's just that not enough of them are good right now. (laughs) With Rajon, again, Rajon is good for this team, but finding minutes for him, again, when he gave up the and one to Jalen Brunson, I think that Ty Lue got to the point where they're trailing by too much and they needed a shooter. When Marcus Morris Sr. fouled out, who did Ty Lue go to? He went with Reggie. Not because he's the best defender or the best playmaker, but because Reggie happened to be the only guy in double figures outside of the two All-Stars. Yeah, that's he was a, hitting his threes, cool. even though he was the exactly. problem on That's defense. why he was out there. That's why he got 30 minutes. He was out there because Reggie was hitting in a way no one else really was. Mm-hmm. Pat Beverly made one shot all game in game two. So with Pat, it's like if he's defending, if he's making an impact, that's one thing. But Pat didn't get a rebound. He didn't he didn't score inside the arc. So it's like, all right, Pat's not an option late right now. Rajan, 
if he's able to control the game and play at a certain pace, that's one thing. But if you need offense, if you need a shooter, well, you're going to have to go with Reggie. I have so a, that's a really the that's really the challenge. And if your proposal involves Luke Kennard, <laughs> it is then then <laughs> look. Everyone is talking about Luke as if the Clippers have an offensive issue right now, and they need to defend. They need to defend, and Luke unfortunately did not gain the trust of this staff that for a team that needs stops, that Luke is going to be able to get those stops. That's kind of that's where it's at. Maybe he does get using game three to shake things up, but they need stops. They don't. They, they that's where that's where it is right now. Luke best skill is as a shooter mm-hmm. and everything else is theoretical like his ball handling his playmaking theoretical because we saw plenty of instances this year where luke's on the floor with the stars without the stars and luke just kind of has just been there so that's that's the challenge with luke and that's not to say we won't see him maybe we do but you like Luke Kennard, there's a reason Terrence Mann got, is is the next guy up in the rotation, yeah. a guy who hasn't been playing. But just to follow up on that, along the same lines, how you said that Ibaka was signed to play more and make an impact, Luke Kennard was signed to a four-year, $64 million extension. Just in the interest of innovation and trying something, since so far it hasn't worked, could Tyron Lou reasonably give Kennard a chance? I just don't feel like this is about quote unquote shooting. You know, I mean, Reggie's done a pretty decent job shooting, and you at least know that Reggie will shoot. It's about defense. The Clippers are scoring fine in this series, to be honest with you. Um, they scored 121 points in game two. It's about defense. And just watching this team all season. There's no defensive solution that involves Luke. That's fair. And and again, that's not that's not meant as a slight to to Luke. It's just when you look at the options that this team has, there's a reason Terrence Mann got on the floor before Luke. There's a reason Reggie is getting these chances. I, I, Reggie is a lightning rod for a lot of people, um, but it's not about the bench. To be honest with you, um, I mean the guys coming off the bench need to take advantage of whatever lineups that are missing Luca are available to them. But this is more about how they're starting games. This is more about how zoo and the centers are being used. Like, do you use zoo? Do you use Batum? Do you use uh surge? Like figuring that part out. And the one guy who I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't really come up earlier in this pod that has to be better on both ends of the floor a guy who's going to be playing is Marcus Morris. Marcus Morris. Yeah, definitely. Marcus Morris Sr., he signed the four-year contract. And unlike Luke, that thing is already kicked in. You know, Luke's extension kicks in next year. The roster is going to be different, and Luke is an, an asset going forward, yeah. or what they hope is an asset going forward because mm-hmm. of his theoretical skill set. Marcus is a vet. Marcus is supposed to be the guy that exudes toughness, that's supposed to be the third scorer, that's supposed to be the shooter. That's supposed to be the versatile defender. That's supposed to be able to, you know, when the team needs a response to that, he was going to be able to respond. And Marcus has Marcus has been really, really bad. Um, like Marcus, I pointed out this in my story that got posted on the Athletic this morning. 
Marcus has twice as many thousands rebounds. Marcus wow. has Marcus has missed his first nine threes of the series. He finally, when you saw the impact of when he hits threes, he hit two threes in the fourth quarter. The Clippers cut the lead for you're thinking, all right, here you go. And then he fouls out he, and, 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 and the fouls are soft. The, the fouls are off ball. They're 30 feet away from the basket. Uh, they're illegal screens. That's what he fouled out on. The impact Marcus has had on this series compared to Tim Hardaway Jr. is the difference in this series. Marcus was paid to be the third guy. Not necessarily a star, but the third guy, the third scorer, the guy who's going to get the third most shots. For Marcus to be a no-show right now, the Clippers aren't winning this series. They're not getting close with Marcus uh, playing as poorly as he's played. Um, the Clippers stars are outscoring the, the Mavericks stars, even with all Luka's doing. But Tim Hardaway Jr. outscoring Marcus Morris Sr., 49-13. to 13. That's the difference in the series right now. Yeah, he's been dreadful. I was curious, when he fouled out, why Ty Lue did not go to Nick Batum? From my perspective, he's done as good as anyone has against Luka Doncic so far. And he's been hitting his threes. He just doesn't really take a ton of threes. But uh, do you think someone like Batum should get more minutes in game three, possibly? Possibly. It depends how Morris is playing, right? Because they're kind of interchangeable. Yeah, I mean, Ty was asked about this after game two. And the question pretty much was, you know, Nick has been playing well in the series. Why didn't you go back to him? And Ty basically said he had to look at it. And all I can really deduce there is there was a play in the third quarter uh, where Nico blew a defensive assignment. And you heard Ty Lue kind of yell his name. And anyone who's played basketball, especially organized basketball with a coach, that's, that's not a good feeling when you're pretty much being put on blast like that because of something that you did wrong. So that was a rough moment for Nick. And I'm sure that some of the weird stuff that happened with the defensive breakdowns and miscommunications played a role in some of those veteran guys not playing down the stretch of that game. Batum, Rondo, Ibaka. Those have to get cleaned up and they got to figure that out for game three or it doesn't matter who's going to be out there. But as you mentioned too, Terrence Mann was a bright spot and uh, I just wanted to ask you, just in the interest of positivity, even though we have to be honest about how, how things are going, what's gone right for the Clippers so far? For me, I would say maybe Terrence Mann, Kawhi Leonard's looked really good. And uh, they had a few stretches where they forced turnovers that lead to easy transition buckets. Those are really the only bright spots I've seen. What about you? The bright spot has been the response offensively uh, overall. Like, Ty Lue said, get to the paint. They got to the paint. They did a good job there. Even when you talk about the bright spots, it's a caveat of it either wasn't enough or there was a significant stretch where they didn't sustain it and it cost them. Yeah, the the consistency is not there. Yeah, like they, you know, overall, they've done a decent job of not turning the ball over. But that stretch in the third quarter where a two-point lead became a 12-point deficit, I mean... That's too long of a stretch, eight, nine minutes to get outplayed like that and not be able to return the favor. That's the concern with the Clippers. It's like 
you want bright spots. I mean, yeah, they scored. They protected the ball for the most part. They've had highlights. They've had exciting plays. But the bright spots haven't been enough in the grand scheme of things. Uh, you referred to game two as a must win for the Clippers. Once they dropped game one, they didn't win game two, of course. Do you still believe that for all intents and purposes, this series is over now that they've lost game two, even though you, you never want to say never and they still have a talented team and you never know in sports. Look, they have a chance. So the series isn't over, but like 90, 10, maybe the, 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 look, it's a single NBA history says that a team, any team that drops out, you know, the first two games of a series, regardless of where it's played, uh, your chances of winning that series are in the single digits. Percentage yeah, it might be like six or seven percent at best, maybe less. Right. That and that's regardless of where it's played. You have hope if you're down 0-2, if you lost those two games on the road. You can count on one hand how many teams have lost the first two games of a series at home and came back to win it. That's what the Clippers are in a situation right now. I mean, Clay, Kawhi and Surge. They were on a Raptors team that went down 0-2 to the Bucks in 2019 and came back to win. But game three was in Toronto. And you know what? That game three went into overtime, and it could have went either way. Because now you're facing an 0-3 deficit, and in the NBA, no teams ever come back from that, regardless of where it is. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you're just playing the history of things, leave the Clippers out of it, because the Clippers have never overcome something like this. But if you're just playing NBA history and looking at things like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very tough hill to climb. Just like it's a tough hill to climb when you're down 12 in the second half against a team that is controlling the game. Like what yeah. we saw in game two from the Mavericks. So this is going to be extremely difficult for the Clippers. If they're a special team, they'll overcome it. We're just being reminded over the course of this month over the last week or so that they're not that team. Please let me know if I'm reaching here, but once travel's factored in, the shortest turnaround time of the series between games is between games five and six and six and seven. So given the makeup of these rosters, I'm talking about specifically the heavy workload and high usage rate of Doncic. Could that somehow be an advantage for the Clippers if they manage to start winning games and extend the series just that it's such a quick turnaround time between those games. Not really. <laughs> this is an older team. I was reaching. I needed. That's why I have you on here. I need. I needed some clarity and honesty. Yeah, Luca's what twenty one. <laughs> like you know, again, Luca hasn't played his best in the fourth quarter, but also that's considering the fact that the Clippers are overplaying him in the first place and. They're not winning the fourth quarters by as much as they need to, um, considering the deficits that they're in. I'm not worrying about Luka Doncic and his turnarounds. Like the Clippers got to get on a plane, and they got to go to that building in Dallas, and they need to win multiple games to win this series. That is a treacherous, treacherous place to find yourself, considering you chose all of this. So. Nah, they're they're like the little advantage, the little caveats. It's like a lot of this comes down to you got to win. You got to perform. That's it. That's it. As we wind down, if you could just uh, touch upon this really quickly so we could try to get through a couple more things. I'd love to learn 
what you think the biggest difference is between this postseason and last postseason. It's, of course, a rematch of last year's 2-7 opening round matchup. And Porzingis missed games four through six, but the Clippers won two of three when he played. And uh, Doncic was phenomenal that series, but, I mean, the Clippers still handily won it. And that was when the Mavericks had the league's best offense. It was actually the historically best offense to date since uh, they've been bested. But yeah, what was the, what's the difference between this year and last year, even though obviously personnel is slightly different? Well, honestly, what the Mavericks are getting out of Tim Hardaway Jr. is superstar stuff. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Um, I think the, the Dallas players are better to be honest with you, uh, than they were last year. They're a better fit. They kind of miss Seth Curry, uh, but Josh Richardson gives him a defense, a better defensive option. So situationally, they're a little bit uh, better set up for success there. And just having healthier options is really what it comes down to. I mean, this Dallas team game planned uh, to take away the things that hurt them last year. And it's just tough beating a team two years in a row in the playoffs. Um, Luke has been really good. Tim Hardaway Jr., he's just he's just been a huge difference maker. Uh, Porzingis hasn't shined, but he's, he's definitely put the games away in the fourth quarter, that's for sure. And that's pretty much what it comes down to. I mean, game two was close. Game one was close. We're talking about games that were um, – they, they both went in a clutch time. So Dallas is just – the Clippers just chose really bad games to have certain droughts. Um, and it was the fourth quarter of game one, the last six minutes, where they only scored five points in the last six minutes of game one. And they only scored ten points over an eight, nine-minute stretch in the third quarter in game two. Those are – we're talking about those mere minutes, those stretches uh, have kind of decided these contests. Dallas is just a healthier team last year, and they have guys who kind of fit better, and they know what beat them last year. That's a tough thing to go up against from one year to the next. Just another quick one for you before I close with the last question, and I really appreciate your time during this hectic period. It feels really presumptuous for me to even ask you this question at this stage, but because we might not get a chance to have you on before or during a potential matchup with the Utah Jazz or Grizzlies, I guess. As of recording time, Memphis leads that series 1-0. How do the Clippers match up with Utah? Feel free to be brief. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, the Clippers, I think they feel good about the matchup with the Jazz. Uh, the Jazz don't have a lot of perimeter defensive options. I mean, people love to clown Paul George about how their series went against Joe Ingles' Uh, a few years ago, and Royce O'Neal is a is a big body, but the bottom line there is the Clippers are probably going to feel good about their ability to make Donovan Mitchell have to guard somebody that he's not set out to guard. We're going to see how well Donovan Mitchell's ankle responds if it gets to that point, if the Clippers can pull the unlikely and, and survive the Mavericks. Um, and then the Clippers know that they need to sell out defendant three-pointer against the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. But Donovan Mitchell is a similar problem to Luka Doncic as far as his pick and roll ability. Donovan isn't as good as a passer and isn't as big. So the, naturally, Donovan is not as good as Luka, but 
Donovan is a dynamic player who can hit off the bounce threes and he can make things happen as a dynamic athlete inside. So it would be an interesting series. It would be a great matchup and it's a damn shame we're probably not going to see it. Yeah, totally agreed. And last but not least, I would be remiss if I did not ask about Kawhi Leonard's contract situation. There's a lot of chatter, consternation about it. How likely is it that he'll opt out if the Clippers fail to go deep these playoffs or even worse or bounced in the first round? Well, he said going into the season that he planned on opting out as long as he's healthy. He looks really healthy and the team is failing. So that's the worst case scenario for the Clippers. And and Paul George, he was signed to a big extension, so they don't risk losing both of them this offseason. Do you think that having Paul George as that security blanket does anything for Kawhi Leonard wanting to stay long-term? Or is it just maybe that he could just see that he has a, a better chance to win elsewhere? All I can say about Paul is the last time he was one year into a new contract with the team in <laughs> I remember. the first round, uh, Paul George wound up forcing his way out. So contracts in the NBA are year to year. Um, That's what made last year so bad. Kawhi signed a deal with the Clippers where we knew that this was going to happen. The pressure was going to be put on. It was basically you had two years to do something special. They lost a year last year due to everything that happened um, in games five through seven against the Denver Nuggets. They're now in a position where this was a year where the pressure was on and they, they right now they're in a rough place. So there's no guarantees if you lose this early. Simple as that. You may not have inside information on it, but do you think that Kawhi Leonard will leave if the Clippers are bounced in the first round? As a, as a beat reporter, I'm going to leave that one alone. Okay. <laughs> that, that's my answer there. That's fair. I really appreciate your time and insight. It's always great talking with you, and now we got to do it on the air, too. Yep. Thank you so much, Aaron.